0: Did you know that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day? Hi, Zach Kuhn here, entrepreneur, Nashville music business professional. And I'm here to tell you that if you need to recruit people for your business, ZipRecruiter is the place to do it. But don't take my word for it. Well, actually, you should take my word for it. And here's what you need to do. You need to go to ZipRecruiter.com. Dot com slash Zach. That's www.ziprecruiter.com slash Zach to learn more there about recruiting the best people for your business. The fastest, best people fast. You know that fast, good, cheap pyramid? Well, this is doing it all. This is fast, good. And yeah, you, you got to check out the pricing online. Uh, that's kind of above my pay grade, but Zip Recruiter, check it out. Too Too, too many ads. Here we go. You know, I'm excited to have Jordan on the podcast this week because I think the world is opening up. You know what I mean? It just kind of feels like it's in the air. The world is opening up. We're going to be getting out of this pandemic pretty soon. It's the feeling in the air. I don't know. What do I know? But as a booking agent, Jordan's entire industry has been on pause. Of course, we all know this. But now I think it's starting to open up. You know, we're starting to book shows that we think are going to happen, plays that are going to happen. Texas is opening up. O- Oklahoma is opening up. The states are starting to open up. Jordan's getting back to work. I mean, he's been busy this whole time, but he's now booking shows again that, that, that we really think are going to play, that are going to happen. And we talk a lot about the future of the live industry. And we talk about Jordan's past. We really get to know who Jordan is. And we learn about the uh, all the great things he's done in his life, like, walking out on his pregnant wife um, to see the cat empire play in central park you know things like that i'm just messing with you jordan i i I know you're gonna hear this i would have done the same thing but i like to poke fun at you anyway here we go i i think episode 55 is it 56 i think this is episode 56 jordan burger the head of madison house nashville here we go let's dive in okay so jordan let me ask you because you're an agent last i checked And I'm curious what the landscape (laughs) looks like right now because I think earlier in the pandemic, agents were like scheduling almost as like this exercise of like, well, we got to do something, so we're going to schedule, but we know that these shows probably aren't going to happen. So you're scheduling, you're rescheduling, you're maybe overly optimistic, maybe this was maybe over the summer or last spring or, or, you know, whatever. Now it feels like we're really pushing the end of this. There's a vaccine. It feels like things are really starting to open up. Now, when you're booking shows, are you booking to really
1: believe that these shows are going to happen? I sure hope so. (laughs) Gosh, I sure hope so. Uh, You know, last year I was probably overly optimistic. I personally believed in March that this was going to run through May. I had a summer trip to Italy booked that I really believed we would be going on then. I thought like people would screw it up on Memorial day and it would be pushed to 4th of July. But I also thought people would be smart enough to learn their lessons at that point. And that like in the summertime, things would start to reopen. I had high hopes for last fall. So everything I had in the beginning of the year, I kind of pushed to last summer and fall. And I found myself rebooking on repeat. And quite frankly, you know, other people were wiser than me and told me to push everything to 2022 but as an independent agent you know we live more on commissions than salaries in a way and um and I represent artists who were all completely out of work and crew members out of work and I just had to believe that if we could put something on the board in the fall I just didn't really believe That the government was going to come to our rescue and we were fighting all year with the save our stages campaign um, which my ceo nadia pressure is one of the creators of with um, all sorts of other amazing agents from around the industry and um, that was such like a you know a life-saving mission for a lot of venues and um you know, the, the booking agencies out there, the independent talent organizations, but I just wasn't confident that it was going to be, you know, everyone's saving mission. And so I just kind of hope that we would get back to some sort of life in the fall. And then the fall came and it was next year. And now like I have all sorts of shows and that are supposed to be happening right now, March, April, that I thought for sure we'd be out of it by now. And those are being rebooked into the fall. And actually I'm doing a lot less of it now. My personal opinion is that in the summertime we will have more pod shows. Amphitheaters will be open at half cap. I know a lot of venues in the Southeast are already opening at hundred percent like in Texas. Oklahoma opened today at 100%. So
0: are you looking like when Texas says we're opening up at 100%, is that like music to your ears? Or is every agent basically like, holy shit, how do we get in Texas right now? Like, let's start booking. Or is it kind of risky? Do you still think it's kind of risky to be playing
1: shows? That's that's the mix, that we have to try and find that balance. A lot of the governments are opening up at 100%, like restaurants are allowed there. But they're also giving the power to the people and is kind of their mission in these Southern states is to give the power to the people to behave, have the distance, keep wearing masks, get their shots. And I think most of the music industry would like to um, not go backwards. And most of the music industry is trying their best to do uh, 50% capacities and wear masks and you know, impose distancing rules. And I think that is going to be spaced out the way for the next few months. uh, Throughout the summer, I think as we rally back into fall with indoor venues, and in the winter is where I think we will more find, uh, hopefully life beginning to become a little bit back to normal. I'm really encouraged by, you know, the Biden administration and not to be all political I actually try really hard to be an independent um but I'm encouraged by the rollout thus far of these first 3 months I'm encouraged by his speech last night saying every adult will have a shot in their arm by May I'm trying my he best just to
0: just signed be uh, he just signed what was like a 1.6 trillion dollar bill which will include um you know the uh, funds for the venues are you seeing as you're getting out and booking with the venue landscape, are the venues that you were typically booked, because you do a lot of work with clubs also, are a lot of them still there? Or as you're looking across the board,
1: are you seeing clubs shut down? There are so many clubs that have shut down everywhere. And the harder part is that like, even with this $1.6 trillion blah, 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 it still is not there. And that's a big point is like, this stuff passed in December, this stuff should have passed last summer, the infighting, At government level of Congress, you know, the 50 50 split, it's just really frustrating, because ultimately nothing happens. And that's, that's the part that I wish, I wish somehow we could be a unified country. It's really frustrating and hard that we're so 50 50 on everything. And it's really weird, like, you know, I live in a neighborhood where I love all my neighbors, and I love all my friends, but some of us have just very, very different uh, personal beliefs and backgrounds. And I guess that's what makes America supposedly beautiful, but there is a lot of it that to me is so wrong. And a lot of what I do that to them is so wrong. I don't know how <laughs> how we're gonna find you our way win. to the middle.
0: You can't, you can't win here in America. So when when you're like booking these dates right now, is the landscape incredibly crowded? Like, are you fighting yeah. for like your 30th hold? Like, uh, like oh, is himself. everybody just trying to book right now? Is it, is it
1: just a mess, a traffic jam? most people picked up their 2020 like a blanket or a tablecloth that was set and tried to just drop it on 2021. But then what happened was, like I was Did saying, that before, the right
0: move is that even though that's kind of crazy, is that the way you should be thinking? Or is that psychotic? Because of course, there's no way you'll be able to replicate what you booked in 2020.
1: In well, 2021. That's kind of what a lot of people tried to do. But then like, new material happens, other bands are still not ready to go out, you know, new songs are on the radio or viral, you know, streaming services, etc. Older bands, maybe not aren't ready to get back in a van yet as much as younger bands. Northeastern and California artists I represent are a little more cautious, say, than Southern artists I represent. Uh, it all just depends. And then what happened is like I was saying earlier, the the spring stuff that was supposed to happen in March, April, May, then that kind of gets dropped on the fall that was already rebooked with the other stuff from the fall. And all of these summer festivals like Bonnaroo say was in June is trying to push to September. And all these like April, May, June, July festivals try and push on top of all of the August, September, October, November. So suddenly you have a glut of festivals on festivals. Clubs on top of clubs, holds that just are kind of like you're like 19th hold, and you're I'm just like, screw it, yeah. Let's just challenge and magically think else to do. (laughs) Yeah, and I it's it's kind of like the wild, wild west in a big silly circus. And it's just really interesting, you know. The the agencies, um, a lot of the larger agencies completely imploded and now they're rebuilding and a lot of Agents that were at all these major agencies have formed all of these amazing independent agencies. And so there's this, you know, resilient new regime of new agencies cropping up, which is really cool, but also like the big firms are still holding strong and doing their thing. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully things are going to start to get better and a little bit back to normal. So here's, here's what I'm really getting at, which is, let's say you are a club act
0: who's on the rise, or let's say, like, I feel like there were a lot of acts that really had their moment in 2020. And, you know, that was their year that they kind of blew up and nobody's seen them live. If you're getting on the road for the first time in 2021 or 2022, and you're a new act that's built this following over the pandemic, is this going to be a good time to get on the road and tour? Is it going to be incredibly competitive just to get those dates, is it gonna be a luxury that we're probably gonna be in clubs maybe before we're in stadiums and arenas and you can maybe you know carve out with your local people who are gonna be so excited to get to a show? Like, what does it look like if you're a new act
1: hitting the road for the first time? But well, with new artists, I think they're gonna have a really great opportunity as a lot of these venues are opening in smaller capacity. Uh, for example, Marathon and the Ryman are both open and doing shows at like 500 capacity right now, um, and those are how like- do we
0: book a show at the Ryman? This is something I wanted to do early on in the pandemic. I wanted to book a show at the Ryman just to say I did. I would put the line up together 500 capacity, and I and I called them to try to get the because uh, I was curious what the pricing was, and I got the pricing, and then it was it was kind of high for I the capacity that I was going to do, <laughs> but I, no shit, but I still wanted to do it. How, is this possible? Like, how could you do the Ryman at 500 people? Like, so, to me, this is like an opportunity to do it.
1: To be fair, you're talking about a downtown legendary hundred most iconic, iconic venue. Venue that is a couple of thousand tickets strong. They are not you know, a couple of bucks to rent.
0: (laughs) But I feel like (laughs) if there's ever an opportunity to do it, this is it. When I can get five, I can sell 500 tickets. I think I could do that.
1: Yeah, so with bands that play the Ryman or like Radio City, you'll often notice the tickets are a bit higher because they're just these beautiful, expensive venues to put on a show. And so it can't be done unless the tickets are higher. That's, you know, the joy and beauty and honor of getting to play there. But with the pandemic, sort of the rules went out the window and a lot of these venues are saying, you know, just for a few months, we just want to get a little music back in. It's going to be.
0: I want to cash in on this window within within the few months. I want to rent. the
1: Well, (laughs) I think for a rental, they would probably still probably charge you the same, but you might be able to get in for a few hours and do something. I would take a day like a day like a Monday or Tuesday. You might be able to work out a deal. I'm, you know, not sure exactly what you're looking to do there, but... Okay, well, we'll we'll talk about it offline. So,
0: going back for a minute, you went to Emory. I did. I'm fascinated by Emory because I feel like so many music, um, like, industry legends have come out of Emory. Yeah. Like, Peter Braun, founder of Madison House, came out of Emory. Um, What's the... And you started your first agency... When you were at Emory, the, the new aquarium, the new music aquarium, if I'm not mistaken, the music aquarium. So I'm curious because I feel like all the music legends who came out of Emory also came out of Emory, like promoting shows and booking shows. Is Emory like a great location to be a concert promoter? Like, why, does every, why do legends come out of Emory? I mean, you studied political science and you thought you were going to be a lawyer. So you did not go to Emory for the music business. But like, what about Emory spews out these like music industry icons?
1: Uh, Honestly, I think it's the lack of many great sports teams. (laughs) It was a school that, you know, attracted a lot of people that I think were maybe more into entertainment than sports. We had a lot of good teams. They had a great tennis team and, you know, <laughs> everybody has a good tennis team, maybe a soccer team. I don't, I don't recall how good our soccer team was. The,
0: they're called the Emory Grunters. They're uh, they're uh, it's a great yeah.
1: it's a great tennis team. No, I made that up we were the Eagles, but I don't even remember that. But we had no football team. And so there was like, you know, you had to make other fun. And so Scooter's a little bit younger than me. But Buster Phillips from William Mars went there. And Craig Bruck went to college with me. Uh, he's an agent at ICM in, in New York. And, and, you know, we used to jam at the local bar sometimes together at frat parties. Let me play the bongos, pick up girls. And, uh, and um, who else? Mike Luba, who's the founder of Madison House. He's a year older than me. Uh, he is uh, one of the founders of Madison House. There are five of them. But um, Mike used to um, be like, you know, the social chair of his fraternity and create all these random parties, unauthorized parties in a field where you you know, you just secret society would show up and there would be kegs in a field and a giant stage that appeared out of nowhere. And some band like string cheese incident was playing or Dave Matthews band was playing on the field because Mike got him, and nobody knew about it. And I don't know where he got the money from, but kind of like secretly collected from all the fraternities and created these amazing events and um and so yeah there are a lot of fun friends in the music business and i was the social chair for my fraternity uh, i used to love to throw parties like i created the james brown get to the hot tub party at my fraternity where i put a, a blow up hot tub in every room of the house that was probably not great in a me too 2021 but That's <laughs> in, much, yeah. in 1993 it was one super fun fraternity sorority house party Um, I also, uh, created, uh, uh, my own Lollapalooza called Palooza back in college. And, um, and as I used to create these events, um, Evan and Jaren, who had this pop hit called crazy for this girl, they, uh, they were living down the street. They were an acoustic duo of these handsome twins and charismatic. And, and I would book all these bands, like, like, early days, Hootie and the Blowfish or Edwin McCain, or um, everything is a wonderful band I love and actually is just getting back together that I'm working with again. And um, all these bands would play like these massive house parties, but up on the roof, Evan and Jaren had it just flooded with all the college cards. And so um, they just, you know, they, they were amazing. They were super talented and I was a senior and I kept haggling with them to play the frat parties and they would say, hey, we need a booking agent. They had written a script out. They were lived across the street from campus. And they were like, call Eddie attic and call 12th Importer or Bluebird. They had a list of all these clubs around the Southeast. They had a whole database that they created on their own. They were already doing it. Like these are like, they were just like early geniuses. And, um, and they wrote out this script and told me to fake it till I make it and lie to people and call people and say, you're our agent. And I would call people and I needed to make up a name and I loved Stevie wonders, the original music aquarium volume one and two or whatever. <laughs> and so I called my business, the new music aquarium and got a little like LLC license and sat in their basement after college like after classes. Uh, I was interning at the time for a guy named Eric Olson over at Electra records and uh, stuffing better than Ezra's good single into like boxes and trying to get radio stations to play. it, And then I'd go over to Evan and Jaren's house and and just bake it and tell people I was their agent and like spread a calendar like big, giant printed calendars on the floor and um, just made it happen called the Windjammer in Charleston and Cumberland's in Charleston, South Carolina and Five Points in Columbia and the neighborhood pub and Amos's in Charlotte and all these random places. And I just like kind of learned how to do it and then they all i uh, had a, they introduced me to another artist named angie Aparo. he wrote faith hills song cry and he had this amazing voice and i was booking the two of them in a band called soup uh and a group called edith's wish that eventually got to deal with arista and the four of them were making me like 20 grand 25 grand a year in commissions as a 21 year old and I was just like, all right, I guess this is my job. I'm not going to go to law school. Well, that is part <laughs> This is part of the like of the uh,
0: the Emory thing that like Scooter was making so much money in college. Matt Graham, who um, is a manager in L.A., I've talked he went to Emory and he was like, I was making so much money as a promoter at Emory that I like couldn't get another job out of college because I'd be making less money like you were making 20 grand. A year 25 grand, and from my research, you were never an assistant, right? Like most agents are an assistant. Were you ever an assistant?
1: I, well, I was my own assistant. I, you know, would create a Microsoft Word silly little document, and it was the early days of the internet and FileMaker Pro kind of programs. And, um, there was a guy named Mark Laurie who had an agency at Skyline. Uh, He's an independent agent, and he was creating like a little database. He was trying to help me like put together. I forget even like the program. It started with an A, and it was some like early days website kind of, you know, (laughs) filtering program that would spit out a contract. And uh, again, I like was right down the street from Emory, so uh, I would get interns that you know I was just fresh out of school, so I knew seniors and juniors and sophomores that were on the concert committee or their social committees or were also interested in entertainment. And, you know, again, like faked it until I made it, got like interns to come over and work for me. And I would teach them and they would, you know, help me with the, all the data entry. And uh, I would go on the road with these bands and meet all the clubs. And and then as they, two or three of them all got record deals all at the same time, Angie, Evan and Jaren and Edith Swish all got a record deal and soup got a management team. and was getting love from 99 next which was um leslie fram at the time we run cmt she ran of course and all these great guys um uh steve and sean and uh you know all these guys were really cool and supportive to my bands and the whole six-man team was down there at the time just starting out and so those festival cruises were really helpful to my bands and it was great and things started taking off but i had to like go to new york and figure it out which is where i grew up and um and you know, try and figure out how to be a part of a, a larger firm because I really had no idea what I was doing.
0: <laughs> were you worried at the Music Aquarium that like you were going to be booking these acts, and did you get? I'm sure you got kind of attached to them a little bit. Were you worried that like a bigger agency was going to come in and swoop them up?
1: Very just- much so. I actually did something really foolish. Um, probably I guess about 1997, and I went to the Polestar Conference. And I kind of like got up in the in the middle of a panel and kind of whined like a little kid that didn't wasn't feeling it was I was like a record label panel with some agents and one of the uh, one of the label reps that was my teammate at the time for the Evan and Jeremy project was on the panel. They were signed to Island Records at the time, and I felt like I was kind of complaining that like the major agencies were trying to poach all of my bands. And, um,
0: and they said, yeah, we are.
1: <laughs> yeah, basically. They were like, <laughs> but at the same time, like, you know, I, I I was just fighting, fighting my best to stay afloat. And that actually got me uh, a handful of interviews um, with some independent agencies. And uh, I ended up joining a company called Pinnacle.
0: Pinnacle, you ended up joining Pinnacle. That was the... <laughs> yeah. And, and wait, wait. So going back for one second, because I'm just curious. Although I, I want to talk about Pinnacle. um you, How did you start booking Derek Trucks?
1: Because Derek Trucks. Him? he was like a little kid. Derek Trucks. I guess I don't know how old he must have been. He was like probably like 14 or 15 or 16. He, there are those
0: videos online where you can see him playing at like 12, 13, 14. And he's yeah, absolutely shredding. Like he's just yeah, he was shredding, and he had a
1: band. It was the Derek Trucks band, and he had a different. There was a singer um you know and uh and it was managed by this guy named Bunky Odom who is like your classic and Bunky's still still alive and kicking but he was like 70s like (laughs) at that time I feel like he's old as can be but he's alive and kicking and he's uh he was um just a really sweet you know southern dude he managed a, a a jam band I loved at the time called The Grapes and he had a partner who I'm forgetting what their partner was and um, and then there were like these younger folks um, like on everybody's name, but his manager now was his tour manager at the time. And uh, and he was just such like the nicest guy. And and he became the tour manager became his manager. And uh, now they're with Wayne Forte at Entourage. And it was only probably like a year or two when I was still with the new music aquarium and they didn't come with me to Pinnacle. Uh, I probably booked them for about a year. I was just like, you know, I was like 23 and he was like 15. And it seems like forever ago because, um, you know, I just wasn't even,
0: Crazy. wasn't even
1: really like in it yet. And he wasn't really Derek Trucks yet, you know? It was kind of like, I was but in did the You minor think, like, and he holy was, crap, this kid's insane. Like, he was
0: yeah. like, even in those videos that I've watched, like, he's just mind blowingly good. And his band was older, right? He, his, he was playing with all these older guys and he was the only kid and he's like smoking everyone in the band, it's incredible to see. So you now go work, you work at Pinnacle, did, wait, so did you sign Kid Rock or who signs Kid Rock? At so Pinnacle? Kid Pinnacle Rock is one I mean? of my
1: favorite stories I ever get to tell. Um, what's the what's Rock, the Kid Rock story? Kid Rock was signed by my boss, John Dittmar and Scott Sokol, who, so Pinnacle was four people. John Dittmar was the head of the company, and then Scott Sokol and Vicky Wenzel, and they hired myself to be the third territory. How did you
0: connect with them? Did they see what you were doing with the Music Aquarium or or did did you kind of reach out to them and, and jam your yeah, way? I was
1: hustling to get, you know, be a part of a larger team with a larger brand going on. And John represented bands like Oasis and Rob Zombie and a lot of metal like Pantera and Slayer that I wasn't really super into, but they had a lot of cool rock bands like Sugar Ray and stuff like that, Sister Hazel, which the, um, the manager was a good friend of mine down in Atlanta. And um, so, I, and I was just, you know, a young kid willing to put in the hard work and, and get my foot in the door. So they hired me to be a territorial agent and I would book 20 states in a diagonal line from Florida to Minnesota. And that would include Michigan. And um, one day, Jason Flom, uh, who's president of Atlantic, of course doing showcase at like a rehearsal studio, like SAR kind of studio in like Times Square, Manhattan. And he was, it was kind of like, you got your own little showcase. It wasn't like, usually they would do like 50 people in the room, but this was one where it was like five people in the room at a time, I guess. And so, John and Vicky, Vicky had California side and Scott had the Northeast stuff, and I was kind of getting all like the middle America kind of stuff in between, all the Carolina work and you know whatnot. And so we all went the four of us went down to this SIR studio and Jason Flom's there with this giant like Cold chains around his neck, all pumped <laughs> out, and that's not a- really how I think of the images
0: <laughs> of now. But uh, no,
1: but he had he was like trying to like be in the kid rock spirit, he was dressed like kid okay. rock,
0: he wasn't doing his best like Ahmed again like that's what I would no, 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 too. he was wearing like, like
1: kid rock bling, trying to connect, and, uh, and he was just kind of had this vibe of wait till you guys see what you're about to see. And so we're like sitting on like a couch, you know, in like a recording studio kind of room. Not a recording studio, but a rehearsal studio room, right? Where bands like prep the live show. And we're in Times Square inside of a building, like in a room inside of a building, right? And also in the door swings open. And uh Joe C, the uh the little person that he passed away a few years ago, and he comes galloping in on a pony and uh jumps off this pony and gets right in my face and he's like are
0: you fucking ready to (laughs) rock
1: he was the hype man he got the energy flowing he He was the opening bag he was amazing and I sure hope I didn't like just wreck your like sound with that imitation no I got it that was it (laughs) he was amazing and we were in we didn't even see anything and then like all of a sudden the door is like you know the lights go down the rumble of thunder kind of comes up and the doors swing open and the band kind of takes stage and then kid rock kind of comes galloping in on like a police horse and he like hops off the thing and he's like it's S-I-R. <laughs> and it was he put on like you know the full-on kid rock arena show in this tiny little room for us and we were in you know and so then <laughs> and we're in how could we not be how could you not be right and uh and john got to sign them and so john and scott signed them but i got to book michigan so you know john would analyze the deals you know tell me i need to work on this get this down get this up but i would call the clubs from the small clubs on a you know that he was starting out in on up to rooms like saint andrew's hall and clutch Cargos, and and then on up to like the ballrooms and the arena level and you know i I followed john's lead as to haggle out the deal but i was booking kids michigan shows and his ohio shows and what you know. was the strategy with him because he was like he still does kind of tear
0: that line between country and rock essentially so were you booking him as a rock act was is that,
1: that, that time you? i booked the ball with the ball album cowboy Devil without a cause so at that time for those two records it was giant bombastic arena level insanity uh it was very zombie like (laughs) you know rob zombie who was also on the roster and it was just as big and as blingy as can be with giant like you know kid rock bling signs all around the rooms and the arenas and and we took him on up from small clubs to arenas Uh, i went to woodstock 99 with him where uh (laughs) <laughs> where it was a complete disaster. I could not believe what I saw at that place, but uh, it was a wild experience.
0: Did you think like I always wanted to go to the real Woodstock? Like, were you like, oh my god, this is my opportunity to go to Woodstock? Like Michael Lane yes put, like this is like this is the this is the thing right here.
1: Oh so- my god. And I love like the people who put on Woodstock. That one was like a John Sherman. Um but God, what a disaster it was. That was one of the worst <laughs> run experiences I've ever experienced in my life. I was like, I had like the artist experience where I was put up in like a military room that kind of felt like a jail cell. It was like a cot without a with a mattress, without a sheet, without a pillow, uh, no hot water. And, you know, there's world vest problems. But- fire vents. I just, it was Firefest, and it was like, you know, 20 years ago. And uh, it was, it was ahead funny. of its time. Honestly, it was, it was <laughs> actually, <laughs> exactly, it was actually
0: a pioneer in the space. So in 2010, you opened your first office, I guess, with the Fleming Agency in New York. Was that the first time you had like opened an office
1: for an agency? Well, yeah, well, you from not to like, go through a whole other period of my life. Yeah, give but, me another
0: period. Give
1: me, give me another period, Jordan. <laughs> in 2000, I was only a pinnacle for about two years. And then I switched over to the agency group, which is now right, UTD. Right, right. And I spent a full decade where uh, I represented probably 50 plus bands over 10 years. I met my wife in that time period. I had my children in that time period. I moved out of New York in that time period. There was like a 10 year window of the agency group. That was a massive part of my Like mid twenties to mid thirties, Um, and so that was a really great experience there. You know, I got to work with Mark Cohn, and I signed a band called The Cat Empire from Australia. That's we talk
0: about this for a second because I I just learned this recently that you signed The Cat Empire, and The Cat Empire is one of my favorite bands of all time. Me too. I I love The Cat Empire. Wait, and I'm also curious: are they doing anything right now? Like, are they still together?
1: Well, Australia is touring, and so they're touring. Well. I, you know, I hate to pick favorites and I don't even work with them anymore, but they are absolutely, uh, you know, a top favorite artist that i ever They're Incredible. Ever their with.
0: album Two Shoes might be like one of my top. Me too. I, I absolutely love that album. What, I mean, why did they not take, I mean, I saw them in Central Park and it was pretty packed.
1: Um, I, so the Central Park show was the day my son their, was born.
0: I know. And you ditched your wife in the hospital.
1: You did. Did. <laughs> to go to see the Cat Empire in Central. That is the dedication that I have to my clients.
0: I mean, to me, yeah. that your kid—does your son know this? Who's uh, who, who's walked in? Does he know that you ditched him in the hospital to go see the Cat Empire?
1: <laughs> Anna loves that story. You know, the uh, the Two Shoes record was again like the record I was working. They played. I got to go to have my bachelor party in Montreal where they were touring in support of that record, and then a few weeks later, or no, I guess a year later, whatever we we hit the um the new york show it was the last show of the tour uh, i guess to a, a separate tour a year later because my so now it's my son and not my wedding <laughs> but uh but at new york at summer stage was the day my son was born and the show was at like two in the afternoon uh because it was like a summer stage show with the brazilian girls and right. i um i went to the hospital with my wife, and she was being induced because she was like, uh it's just like a day or two like late and her doctor was about to go on vacation. And so we were just like, Alright, let's do it today. It's a Sunday, it's here, right?
0: The doctor's like, Look, I'm about to go on vacation. So yeah, we need to get a move on here. We need to run. Yeah,
1: basically what happened. And so we my wife and I were walking in the park. And she's like, I know you have this cat empire show today, but I'm nine plus months pregnant and it's time. <laughs> and so we went to the hospital. It's fine, whatever. And my mom was on the way with my stepdad. And it's probably about noon, one o'clock, and uh they're just starting to induce her. And I guess it's a long process. And the uh the um the the doctor says you know it's probably going to be a good like eight to ten hours before this thing really happens it's probably going to be midnight even tonight before the baby comes and you know just like relax take your time and then leaves the room and my wife looks at me she's like no (laughs) I didn't even say anything yet but she's like no I was like please I can be back like by like four or five o'clock and uh my parents were on the way. And so I waited for my mom to show up about 130 or so. And then I just like dove in a cab, went down to Central Park, danced my butt off. You know, I'm out with the fan, gave them all big hugs, wished them a safe trip back to Australia, and then busted my way back to the hospital. And the baby didn't come out till, you know, the next morning, Jake no hot.
0: regrets. And that was maybe your last hurrah as a uh, as a as a non-dad. That was your last yeah. time to cut loose. <laughs>
1: Maybe, yeah, Maybe I would, would not. But yeah, I um, I, uh, I hustled back at five, and you know, Jake didn't come for probably sixteen hours more. So. And it is was, the Cat uh, Empire
0: his favorite band?
1: Uh, he had a cute little onesie at that time, and they should be his favorite band. He's into uh, you know Fall Out Boy and Panic at the Disco and Imagine Dragons and
0: Linkin. bands, not exactly the Cat Empire.
1: He's a great rapper. He can do a well. Uh, done Eminem impression.
0: (laughs) That's pretty good, that's pretty good. Okay, so
1: you're at the agency group for a
0: decade and then in in 2010, you start, you open up the New York Fleming office, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah,
1: so yeah, I was at the agency group for like 10 years. There's much to love about the major agency world. There's much that can be very frustrating when you're working in a large corporation and it just you know my time there came to an end and then i went to work for this smaller corporation called, called fleming artists they were um a singer-songwriter americana agency based out of michigan and they really were doing well with a lot of their clients they represented ani defranco and Lori mckenna and toad the wet sprocket and colin hay from men at work and gregory allen isaacoff and all these really wonderful talents and they wanted a larger presence in New York. And I said I would open a New York office for them, but I had had enough of New York. I was ready to move to Nashville. And um, so I agreed to stay there for a year and uh, and establish a little presence for them in New York. And then in 2012, it was time to come to Nashville. And um, my wife and my kids, we, we took off and we came down here. We're in Franklin now. And we absolutely love it. We've been here for eight, nine years now. Um, are you, are you, like
0: proud or happy to be raising? Like I, I would grew up just outside New York City, and I always think that this is a huge typecast, and this is a very general statement. But I always think that kids who grew up in New York always have issues. Are you glad? Are you glad? Are you glad that you're raising your kids not in New York City?
1: Uh, I always say I loved it in my twenties, and when I had nobody to care about. But once I got married, and I had responsibilities and children. well, we moved to Westchester, but it didn't really, I just didn't enjoy commuting and spending hours on a train and all the money that it would cost to, you know, be commuting. And um, the daycare bills were insane. My kids were like a hundred dollars per child per day for just to like go to infant daycare. It was thousands of dollars a month for the commute and the daycare. And I wasn't spending any time with them because I was mostly on a train and You know, at the desk, and going to shows, and I I loved it. But I also found myself working twenty-hour days and losing, you know, in the overall value of life and value of my bank account. Once I moved to Nashville, it was just so much easier. And you know, now I'm in my forties, and uh, you know, I feel so much healthier, a little bit, and better than I did when I was in New York. The stress, I lost all my hair. I used to have a giant like afro as a kid. New York uh, did that. See, my dad
0: is uh, still commutes, not now, but he still commutes to the city every day from Westchester, completely bald. It's funny how I think the city does that to you.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, like, I just feel a little less stress. You know, my bones creak a little more in my old age, but I actually just feel better about life spiritually, mentally. Everybody jokes on the Jew who loves church. I, um, I've grown to just really appreciate all that some of this Southern life has to offer.
0: Absolutely. So, I I mean, so you're at the Fleming Group. Eventually, um, you start the Masson House in Nashville. Um, So much we could talk about. The thing I'm curious about with Masson House is you represent a lot of of American Idol winners and finalists and people who went very far in American Idol. What is the secret to maintaining a career post-idol? Because some people do it very gracefully and some people can't really do it at all and you're doing it with people who are who are really kind of doing it gracefully, right? Like, like what's the secret post-idol to keeping your career going?
1: So Madison House, we came together in 2016 where uh, Fleming was doing quite well with all these singer-songwriters and I had picked up some idol artists a couple of years prior. Um, Madison House has always been extremely successful in the festival world right uh, jam band community and the electronic community they own the electric forest festival and they manage string cheese and stuff and at fleming we were developing this really kind of cool americana style of roster i had signed this band southern avenue uh that was on stacks records and um, carbon leaf out of virginia i love carbon leaf also yeah they're a great band and the another great band so we were having this really great americana thing and um I guess in like 2014 I got a call from CAA uh, from Buster Phillips that uh, and Jeff Frasco that a lot of their, you know, hundreds of idols, they were automatically placed at CAA. So there were some that they were going to keep, you know, Kelly Clarkson was staying and Carrie Underwood was staying, and I guess Daughtry was staying at the time. Um, But the, uh, but there were, you know, hundreds of idols that they were, they just didn't have room for anymore. And, Chris was somebody who I always thought just had tons of talent. He has such an incredibly beautiful voice, Chris Allen. And um, he plays the guitar. He sometimes plays the piano. And uh, I just thought he just could shine. And I loved his song, Live Like We're Dying. And um, I said like, I don't wanna take them all on, but I would love to work with Chris. And so uh, I had a meeting with Chris and he's like, the nicest prince of a human. And I think his voice is like absolute perfection. And and so he fit in really well with the Fleming artist vibe, if you will. And then um, it started this relationship where Buster and Jeff would kind of call me every couple of months and they would pitch a lot of different artists. And I didn't really wanna just represent any pop singer. I don't really have like the major agency like roster of 600, pop stars that they can just be instantly put on. So I'm generally looking for artists that can hold their own and stand on stage with a guitar and sing and write songs and be a part of like a growth in that way. Um, and I saw that in Chris. And then David Cook called, you know, maybe a year later and said, I really like what you're doing with Chris. You know, I was doing amazing right after Idol, But, you know, CAA has a lot of bands on their roster and it's time for to you know, find somebody who like can really put in a tight focus and energy on what I'm doing because I have a new record and you know he was just really wanted to grow and um, sometimes like the the major agencies they have a lot of large projects that you know they work on and it's it's not to knock I don't want to say like one side is better than another it's just like what you find your time and passion to put your day towards and um so I was, you know, a big fan of David and I loved Light On and Come Back to Me. And again, he can play the guitar and he wrote at the time, wrote a, a David Nail hit. And um, so again, great voice, writing and and so I was, you know, and he has a brilliant power voice. And um, and I've always been really into the whole festival booking scene. I've always had a lot of bands playing the Bonaroos and the electric forests of the world. Uh, I just love a festival. It's everything to me. And with some of these guys, with the Idol guys, I found that I was opening a whole other world of festivals, family friendly festivals. I've had David Cook and Chris as well on this um, Disney World Eat to the Beat Food and Wine Festival, (laughs) like each of the last six years and my kids and we all go on a, you know, this trip to Disney. And it's been amazing. And I've had a lot of artists on like the Rock Boat and Kayamo and like those festivals. And um, summer fair.
0: What's the secret to like keeping these people like front of mind for their fans and relevant? Is it playing the rock shows is it, or the rock boats? Is it playing these festivals where they can play to their audience, but also be constantly being exposed to new audience and say, Hey, David cook is still out there touring and making music and crushing and puts on a great live show. Like, is, is that the way to keep, you know, some of these idle people front of mind?
1: Honestly, to me, it has nothing in the least bit to do with the TV shows. The TV shows are really great entertainment for a few months of TV. And these brilliant pop singers or brilliant voices, I should say, shine through the clutter. And then the show ends. But if they don't know how to write a song or if they don't have a team that's going to help them find the songs, nothing matters and they disappear. And that's always been the problem. So the way they stay relevant is to continue to write and produce and record hit songs. It's no different than any other singer-songwriter. And so the whole point is I actually really like to say I represent Chris Allen. I represent David Cook. I represent Nick Fradiani and Caleb Johnson, who all won American Idol. But I pitch them by name. I pitch them by the songs that they perform and by the hits that they have and by the talent that they have as Current writers and performers. Much as I would pitch Glenn Phillips from Toad the Wet Sprocket or Colin Hay for Adam, or Southern Avenue or the Unlikely Candidates or you know Red Wanting Blue, all these bands. It's just a band. It's just an act, and it comes down to whether or not they can get their music heard. Is and it tough? Because to me is the difference.
0: People ask me all the time. Not all the time, but people ask me like, "Oh my God, like American hell reached out to me, and I'm thinking about going on Idol." I've seen a lot of young artists go through idol. I've been a good friend of mine who made it to top 25, which is on the top 25 right now this season. Um, and I'm always like, well, the, the the maybe downside is you're an incredible talent who will maybe carry this brand of American Idol, especially if you lose, now you're carrying the brand of you're, you lost on American Idol. And on the upside is you get such a shot of traction. It can really be the first step in your career of you know massive traction and fan base and audience. Like right. what advice do you say working with people on the other side of
1: American Idol? When someone comes in, you're like, should I go on American Idol? Like what, what advice do you tell them? I think it's great exposure. I think people have a stigma against being on a TV show for their exposure. To me, it's exposure. I love the show Songland and all the Nashville songwriters that are out there that are trying to become hit songwriters or hit performers. I, you know, it, it's a, I don't want to say it's schlocky on all these shows where like it's entertainment, you know, they're supposed to be silly a bit. Um, But I think like Songland shows off the amazing amounts of talent, uh, particularly in Nashville, there are always great songwriters, but they're all from LA and New York and whatnot and all different genres of music. And even if they lose, they get to show their skill. Sometimes they win and their songs become heard. There are artists on the voice that have, gone one and gone nowhere but then there are artists on the voice like like a Ray Lynn that have continued to put out records and develop a career or, or Morgan Cassidy Wallen he wasn't just canceled but um, sure but like Cassidy Pope is a great example Cassidy she was Pope. in a punk great punk group uh, Hey Monday I think they were called and then she you know be she won the voice but you know again it wasn't about her winning the voice and it was about what she did after the voice and she had hit songs on the radio uh, Daniel Bradbury, I think won the voice. and uh, but like to me like a good example is like Daughtry who didn't win Idol, he came in fourth place or like Jennifer Hudson, who came in like seventh place, who are artists who use their platform to push forward decent quality singles. and it was about having the great record that you make thereafter It really comes down to that and only that. I think like that really is relative to everybody. Someone like uh, Melanie Martinez, who, I don't think she won the voice. I don't think she was even maybe a finalist, but she has a cult, very large following now, or um, scary pool party who came in second on Idol last year or two years ago, you know, he has a very legit fan base now. And um, yeah, I just think it's a matter of, of what you do thereafter and the music you put out thereafter that is really what matters, you know, at the end of the day. And so I just, I continue to believe in Chris and David. I really love this new record that Nick Fradiani just made. I love Caleb Johnson's new record. Um, David's got a new EP out and I just think that they make good records. To me, it's it's not about representing singers as much as representing entertainers and songwriters and performers, you know? And having their music heard,
0: absolutely. So with Madison House, the I mean the Ma- Madison House is the the headquarters is in Boulder, Colorado. That's right. If I'm not mistaken, and you guys have an office in Ann Arbor, and then Nashville, and like a couple other like random locations that aren't necessarily music hubs. Although Boulder is kind of a great music town, but is that advantageous to you? Because you have, you know, an agency has to figure out how do I separate myself from a major or what, what do we do differently? What's our, you know, what's our advantage? By being in some maybe off the bean path locations compared to let's say Nashville, New York, LA, obviously you're in Nashville. Does that provide certain advantages for the company or, or a different vantage point or a different connection to certain local promoters? Like, like what does that accomplish being in some sort of some, some different locations compared to maybe the major agencies.
1: I actually think it's really cool. Um, you know, after living in New York for 15 years and having done so much in New York, uh, I loved it. I loved my experience there, but I learned that New York doesn't have to be the end all be all. And I feel that people in New York and people in LA who are all amazing people in this industry. And you know- We're not talking bad about anyone not, here. Not talking about New York or LA, but they think like it's often thing it's there or nowhere, right? I personally love being able to visit these, both of these. I feel like I'm perfectly in between them now. They're easy four hour flights in either direction or, you know, closer for New York. Um, and I can go for a couple of days and, blow through a big giant wad of my bank account and see everybody I see and rage for 72 hours straight and then come back to my nice nicer peaceful living and where there's still music every single where I turned you know I have multiple neighbors in my little Franklin development that have had number one hit singles yesterday I bumped into uh, this really adorable couple walking their dog and she was a famous model. And he's got a hot project uh, that's, you know, doing really well on Spotify. And it's just interesting, like, there's music everywhere you turn in Nashville. And, um, and so to answer your original question, Madison House was based uh, originally Nadia was from Ohio, and Mike was in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, and then they opened this with Jesse Arato, Jeremy Stein and Kevin Morris out in Boulder. And I, you know, Denver is an amazing music market and Boulder is a really cool town. And they um, they like to say they do things the Madhouse way. Everything's a little bit different. If you go on our website, like the first thing you see is a festival crowd and balloons in the air. And, you know, they created the Electric Forest Festival and they started, they were the first ones to fight like for fight against Ticketmaster with Pearl Jam and like fight for 10% um, fan, fan club right and they had uh travel agents that were like creating events for bands and you know when they were fighting those 10 percent fees they would they would have fans like buying the tickets and they would mail them they would the string cheese would buy the tickets and then mail them without fees to fans you know and like all sorts of things like that it was they were just cool like that right it's a little bit of like the jam band world um and i just really like find that interesting and i love that about nashville and adam has always had great adam bauer who heads up our michigan office uh, in ann arbor he's always represented these really great bands like toad the wet sprocket and steve Poltz and um colin hay and mike and the mechanics and he's doing just fine like from ann arbor and um and then we have artists in uh in uh, we have agents in carmel we have jerry lima as an agent in carmel california which is near san francisco um we had an office in toronto for a little while and um i don't know i just feel like music is everywhere and you just have to be able to get there you know and and like again at madison house we we promote uh we program the forest hill stadium in queens that's New York. right what is this is it true i've
0: always wanted to go to these there's like a speakeasy at at Forest Hills. Isn't there, isn't yeah. there
1: like a secret speakeasy? Yeah. And it's like the Madhouse way. And so we have a, a sister company, Madison house presents, uh, that has offices in Chicago and Mike is uh Don Sullivan was in Chicago and Mike is in New York and they produce concerts and festivals for people. And, um, and Mike created this Forest Hills stadium. Uh, he rebranded and, and, um, you know programs Farsell stadium and and redesigned it and then there's a porta potty in like the vip section that if you walk through and know the right code or have the right coin or key
0: it's a great out on the other side
1: it's a great venue to see a show i've seen a lot of shows there um I to do that in my uh, in my backyard series <laughs> and you have to do that. The VIP room might just be the uh porta potty itself though. You we might... have a porta exactly. We have <laughs> like porta potties at the burgers and dogs series, and I want to figure out how to like take that into a cool speakeasy back- I
0: think you just shut VIP. off the porta potty and you make the porta potty the uh the the uh the VIP room itself. Is it true yeah. that you passed on John Mayer?
1: <laughs> it is sadly true. I, I wouldn't say I passed on John Mayer. I was invited to a show by uh, his attorney, Reed Hunter. He played Fez, a club called Fez, under Time Cafe in New York. What year is this? This is oh man, I could say like 2001, 2000, long squares and all of that. He was just a tiny uh, new artist, and um, he was in New York like playing a weekly showcase for um, you know industry. Uh, He didn't have a deal yet. And um, Reed Hunter, his attorney, invited me to go and see a show and sat in a booth. There weren't a lot of people there and watched this very talented young man uh, strum his guitar and sing his songs and come and sit in the booth after us. And he gave me his number to put in my cell phone and I didn't call him back. (laughs) I didn't really chase that one down. And, uh, you know, you win some, you lose some.
0: Do you still
1: have the number in your phone? I do. It's a, it's a way old number. I'm sure it's a 404 Atlanta number, and uh, it says John Mayer, musician. And uh, I keep it in my phone just to remind Why me. Why didn't
0: you call him? Did did you not think he was? Did you not think he was going to make it? Was he? I, I mean, everyone who knew him at the time thought he was very arrogant, right? Did he have an arrogant? He uh, was. Way
1: he was very minutes? confident. Very confident. Say, that might be the word. Very confident. And. Uh, um, You know, there was just like three or five people there that night. Sometimes, you know, like New York can be a day where sometimes you're tired. I might have had a long night the night before you see a lot of artists every single day. Hard to know how how talented and just I just didn't move on it. Actually, I have a worse story where I used to represent (laughs) called Wax Poetic. They were signed to Atlantic Records and their featured uh, lead singer was Nora Jones. And um, there there is. Uh, but the group was run by the sax player uh, guy who created the, the club new blue in New York. His name was Ilhan and he was like a sax keyboard guy. And, and I got them like four dates with Sting in Florida. And they had a record deal with Atlantic and uh, and Nora could never could never make the gigs work because she was playing like the living room and the bitter end for her, her acoustic career. and. And so we kind of kicked her out of the band. <laughs> we, kinda, <laughs> we, her manager and Ilhan, and I, their manager and Ilhan, and I, we approached her, her and said, "Like Nora, you got to choose one or the other. We got a record deal here. We got gigs with Sting." And, and she's like, "No, I am gonna be a solo artist." And was was Judy Campbellongo the guitar player in <laughs> that band? Uh, I think he might've played on the record, but he was not in the group. He's not in the group, but he played on the record. But yeah, that kind of vibes. And so, yeah, she was like featured singer in that group and she was working on her first solo record, Come Away With Me. And we were like, yeah, you go and do that, Nora. we do
0: that. We're, we'll fix <laughs> that record deal over here. And we have something else in common, which is our first rock concert was Kiss.
1: Yes. Wait, Where'd you see
0: Kiss? Did you see him at the garden?
1: I used to go to Nassau Coliseum and Madison Square Garden uh you know growing up on eastern long island the nassau coliseum was, a, was an amazing place for shows for me my brother rob is uh he's uh a like a musical manager. he yeah. he's a music guy i mean he's hes, he's very guy. he he, um, he wrote the trailer score uh for the morning show on apple tv and he's scored all these uh arranged all the strings for iron and wines last bunch of records where and is he based or he's here just moved here to nashville he was from Brooklyn to Oregon and now is in Nashville for the last year. And And he used to take me to all these amazing shows as a kid. He took me to see the Chili Peppers, uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers in like 1986. Holy cow. And um, he took me to see uh, Kiss growing up. We saw like Love Gun and Alive One and Two kind of stuff. And oh man, I love Kiss. And so yeah, I believe Love Gun was my first ever concert. Um, that I can really kind of remember was, uh, yeah, one of those early days Kiss tours, like Destroyer and all that I stuff. I just
0: remember, I still remember vividly seeing Kiss and I in the very last row of the arena, quite literally, and just thinking for how far away I was, they looked so huge. I guess because they literally had like a foot lift to them. Yeah. It was because of the screens, but I still think like when, like even my next concert was Pearl Jam, which was an amazing show. And I sat in a similar place. I remember thinking how small they the people on stage look compared to the guys in Kiss who just looked massive. I mean, yes. it's incredible how even that far away they just look like giants.
1: Probably shouldn't admit this, but in my self-conscious younger early twenties, I was uh, I'm only five foot six and I used to go to the to the nightclubs at night with like, you know, the, my friends, and I would wear like black jeans with Gene Simmons like platform. Boots under them that would make me like 5'10. Oh and, my God. And when I would be like, at, you know, when we would sit around in like some on somebody's couch, like pregame, all my friends would just mock me and be like, What are you wearing? <laughs> you
0: that, know? The takeaway from KISS for me, which I think more bands should look at, is not that every band has to be that bombastic and out there, but there are so many moments baked into a KISS show. There's the moment when Gene spits fire. There's the moment when Paul flies across the arena. There's the moment when Gene yes. flies up to the rafters. There's like, there's so many moments that stand out in a KISS show that you look back on and, 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 and like, you know, that, that you think about. Like most acts get up and they play, they play, they play, they play, and they might sound amazing. It might be great, but there's no moments baked into it where not that your moment has to be, you know, flying up to the rafters and pyro and everything but just the idea of like, how do I bake moments into my set that really stand out?
1: I could not agree with you more. I think I'm constantly asking my artists to refresh their set design, their style of their show, putting in lights. I'm always encouraging them to bring a little bit of extra lights on the road. You know, pyro is a little more complicated at times, but Kiss were giant entertainers and my son who is only 13, um, but wants to be one day be a rock star. And so I dragged him to uh, the kiss uh, I guess it was 2019. We also I also made him go to see the Foo Fighters. Um, I tend to drag my son sometimes to bands that he doesn't necessarily know out of the gate. and then I say, you will watch this and you will learn. <laughs> it is important required viewing and he's had a good time he loved that kiss show he's been to like three food fighters shows now and um, uh, you know i take him to see like his bands too but sometimes I maybe- Kiss show
0: was crazy because that was the second time i'd seen kiss from the first time and i had a friend who was on the doc mcgee team and he gave me passes and i had the whole thing and at the end of the show i was backstage and gene hit was hang- hanging in makeup the entire time All the other guys had gone out of makeup, but Gene was still in makeup, walking around full costume, everything. And I was thinking how this is insane, how in in 2009, I was in the rafters and in 2020 or 2019, I was backstage with Kiss. I was like, that was a cool feeling.
1: (laughs) I I think Kiss are entertainment geniuses and what they do with their merchandise is a lesson that artists should always learn. Uh, All their branding, they are just geniuses. Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley, uh, you know, Crazy as they may be at times, and uh, nothing about their political views. They they are know what they're doing. <laughs> Former geniuses, and uh, a lot of lessons should be learned from them.
0: Jordan, we've covered so much here. We've learned a lot. We've learned that if you want to become an industry mogul or an icon, you have to go to Emory. That's the place to do it. <laughs> We have learned that uh, Jordan almost signed John Mayer, but he's very thankful that he didn't because it, w- it wouldn't have worked out anyway.
1: Um, <laughs> I wish I signed John Mayer. He is <laughs> always welcome back. That was have, definitely a move I should have had uh, uh, a little harder for. Maybe we can book his uh, his late night
0: show or his, uh, his show on Instagram. I'd love um, for
1: him to come play my backyard series. I the backyard series that.
0: we haven't touched. And by the way, we're expanding the deck, I hear. For the backyard series. Jack is
1: done. It looks done. If you're listening, it was a patio backyard. that we redesigned, you know, into it actually, um, my contractor yesterday pulled me up on the lawn and said, I don't know if you realize this and we didn't really mean to do it or talk about it, but my patio is now in the shape of a guitar. <sighs> and so we our stage is now beautifully designed like a guitar. Uh, we have a Wonderful amphitheater on a hill, Bose has been amazingly supportive and um, helped us with a great sound system. And, and I have had a lot of artists. Uh, that was probably the highlight of my 2020. I hate to like Was the backyard. Back. So if you're is-
0: listening to this, if you're craving live music, if you want to see a really cool experience, go to the the burgers and dog. How, how, how do people find out about it? Is, is the website up?
1: No. Well, that was part of what was really complicated about it. There is no website. The um, I live in a residential neighborhood. I happen to have a lawn that's shaped like an amphitheater. And so in the middle of the pandemic, I was just sitting out there rescheduling tours 78 times over. And and one day I told my daughter, you got to come out here with like 25 blankets. I feel like there's about 10 feet between each blanket. So we measured that out and um, five rows of five. and. And then I called my friend who works uh, who's a uh, an executive at Bose and and uh, and at Tixer. I had another friend and we, before I knew it, we had all these wonderful artists, Adam Hambrick and Katie Pruitt and Abby Anderson and uh, Chris Allen played it, Southern Avenue played it, and so many other wonderful artists played it. Um, and uh, it was just such like a mind blowing, soul soothing experience. The artists absolutely loved it and kept, Praising how they just enjoyed playing music for people again. An appreciative audience. The fans were loving it. Um, Liz Longley and Emma Hearn and Gabe Dixon did this night. And Gabe Dixon has this moment where he's like, Remember Saturday night. Um, and all my neighbors were totally into it. The city was totally okay with it, but for some stupid loophole of the city of Franklin wouldn't allow me to publicly sell tickets to in a restaurant residential neighborhood. I had to have it be a house party, my invites, I invited guests, and people can make donations to a charity or the artist. Some of the artists donated it to their crew. Um, and so I couldn't, like, do a formal ticket. I actually put up the tickets. Nashville, Nashville uh, Lifestyles picked it up and you wrote about it. and. And all of a sudden all these people started uh, buying tickets and then that's when the city said, no, 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 you can't sell tickets. You can invite everybody you want. So I'm trying to structure it as like a promotional opportunity. Labels can show off new artists um, or, you know, uh, it's sort of like the Bluebird vibe where I'd love to create like a number one writers round again. We had one last year with Marshall Altman and Dylan Altman and Jimmy Urie. Yeah, how great. Incredible, so incredible. And so I'd like to do another thing like that. uh, with some of these like songwriters of Nashville and it's like the bluebird model where you, you make a reservation to get in. And, um, I think we can even possibly do more like 75 people probably now because the blanket squares, you know, you you can have a family of four instead of one couple, probably now, um, we were pretty strict about it then, but I think you could probably have like a family of four kind of thing on a blanket now. And, um, or two couples or something like that. And so, yeah, we're really, really excited to do it again. And it will be, you know, just get in touch with me. I post, follow me on Instagram, I'm Joe to the boo. And uh, we, uh, I put up stories sometimes and I announce it there Because, and like, you know and then it's a matter of just getting on the list and reserving.
0: It's always a matter of getting on the list. That's okay. always. The uh, that's always the, the second kid on
1: the list, so yeah, I'm gonna try and do that again in April, May, June.
0: Do uh, I have the record for most uh, daddy's dogs eaten? At me, a,
1: uh... That blew my mind. Uh, that you could eat two daddy's dogs in one moment was quite impressive. Uh, yeah, and so uh, a bunch of my friends and sponsors, you know, uh, daddy's dogs was in the driveway, benchmark Pub set up for us, uh, uh, image surgical arts and watermark pools like helped us get uh, uh Porta potties and stuff taken care of. And it was just a really amazing, you know, spiritual opportunity to support the music community and, uh, and to do shows at a time where nobody was really doing shows yet. And, you know, things are starting to open up again a bit now, but it's still people want to stay outside. And so, uh, like I always said to people, I really want to be on the news as the person who. Did it right and not like the smoker story, yeah, or, right, the <laughs> Smash Mouth story or whatever. I wanna, I want people to be on, be like, oh my God, this guy did this amazing. It's just a house concert, but we have legit. It really was pets. done
0: right. Like I had such a good time at the one that I, that I yeah. went to, and it was so fun to be at a show, and it felt very safe. Everyone was very respectful of space, wearing masks.
1: Exactly, and it was- outdoors and the lights. We had lights everywhere that we wrapped around and. Um, my wife went insanely over the top with the house with the hospitality for the artists your and daughter checked me in she uh daughter worked the door my son and his buddies uh did the um they were stage hands jake recruited his buddies jt and connor and they would like be stage hands every week helping the artists and wait does your uh, son play is he a musician or he wants to work in the he's business? He's a guitarist he's got a really great voice he's a really great rapper and uh he can play piano and Yeah, my older brother just has so much musical talent that I think it just kind of has spawned off a bit to him a little bit Um, and his son is really great as well. And so, yeah, it was really awesome. I could hire uh, this guy, Chris Lott, was our sound tech and Thomas Anderson was our video tech and um, it was just great to be able to like put some industry to work. And um, and we did it like with like I said, we had a sound tech, we had crew, we had a Bose system. Uh, we had hospitality so it wasn't just like it wasn't just like your typical house concert where the artist shows up with their own little amp and mic and has to figure it out yeah
0: Um, Yeah. this is burgers and dogs
1: yeah we did it legit and so it was really really done right there's a video uh, burgers if you google or if you youtube google search burgers and dogs recap concert video you could see like all the artists we had i made a Fun little over like Christmas. I probably worked for like three weeks on iMovie. Like again, just being creative throughout quarantine. I learned to play on iMovie and make bagels and things like that. And, and I, uh, I
0: to try one of these bagels and I've got to try one of these bagels.
1: Yes, we're going to actually have a couple of, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a, a delivery. I'm trafficking bagels from New York now. It's a new process. It's called par baked bagels, where instead of baking them myself for 24 hours, which is exhausting and giant messy and probably not as good as the real deal. I have figured out uh, there's a company in New York that rolls and boils the bagels in the New York water and seeds them up there. And then
0: we've had the conversation that the New York water claim is bullshit.
1: I agree. I think that, too. But people down here follow fall for that
0: people down here are basically not that <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah i'm gonna have real new york bagels trafficked in here every few weeks to my house and then i'm gonna finish baking them here In how do i get on the list to get to get some of these dan you just gotta know me you gotta be on the list you gotta be in the know that one actually is uh burgers bagels burgers new york bagels are going uh, i'm working on there's an instagram page that is coming together and a website um that I'm working on. And it's going to be a fun, like Saturday every few weeks, kind of like shipment of a thousand New York bagels are coming to my house. They're going to bake a thousand? How long is that going to take? Well, they're, again, they're mostly prepared in New York. But you still have to bake them. Like, how many, yeah. how big is your oven? uh, you know, you'll have to, you'll have to come and see. I'm going to get some neighbors in on it, depending on how many orders will be. I'll find a commissary kitchen and, um, Put me in for an order.
0: Cause I, I want
1: some of these bagels. I know you do. <laughs> Everybody does. It's, uh, we're going to launch. But our am fellow New York
0: that. Jew. I think I should take uh precedent over here. Like I, I think I should cut
1: the line a little bit. Yeah. Well, we're actually, we're doing, uh, we're doing it for Easter weekend. And, <laughs> Uh, my neighbor Bryce who's been working on the website with me at all these like Easter brunch package specials and oh, I was like God. you know I know I'm the Jew who loves all things Christian and uh, worship music and this and that but there's a little too much Easter going on on this page Jews love bagels Passover is like that week we got to make this the holiday brunch
0: <laughs> the PC holiday
1: brunch it's <laughs> so yeah we've got a lot of uh, bagels coming together for uh, a couple of weeks from now I'm pretty excited about that too Okay, can't damn. keep like can't keep busy enough, you know, and and then, and then my wife walks in and you know comes home from a day of like doing legitimate COVID life and violence she's task force crazy. things, and she's, and she's like, yeah, she you know she thinks I'm like sitting on my butt, but I'm really being so creative with Ew, cans and- thousands of bagels <laughs> into the house. This is
0: uh, this is life changing, but- Jordan. We've- <laughs> We've covered so much. We finally made it happen. We've been talking about bringing you on the podcast for a minute. We finally did it. There was a lot of pressure here to deliver because you're always very complimentary of uh, of my uh, other episodes. So this there was really a lot, lot of pressure here to deliver.
1: I love your podcast. While I'm on here, I would like to give you a shout out. I think your podcast is extremely well-researched, thoroughly entertaining. I love all of your guests you've had. I have learned a lot from so many people actually that you've had on there that um, that I've admired from afar. And I really just like love listening to their stories. It's, it's kind of like a Howard Stern's interviews of famous people here, interviewing all my Nashville heroes and assorted. Howard
0: Stern heroes. is like my prep song. Like um, like um, like Like some people might listen to Seven Nation Army to get like pumped up and ready. I just put on like a Howard Stern interview and that gets me going. (laughs) There are some really great ones. Jordan, we have covered it all. We have said so much. We're we're pushing an hour and 25 at this point. It's unbelievable.
1: Any final words in our final moments together? Any final words, Jordan? I just, you know, I appreciate entertainers. I love live music. I think we're all going to come out of this soon. I hope we can all learn to love each other a little more, respect each other a little more and find a way to get back to life again. I really look forward to concerts. I miss live music and hugs. I miss, uh, you know, just being in festivals with my arms in the air, being in a crowd of people and whatever we need to do to get there. You know, I just hope that we can continue to work together to get there and be there for each other. And um, yeah, I just appreciate you having me on here. It's it's the challenge of the the independent you know we always have to try and just stay stay in the loop stay relevant keep working on finding new talent and meeting new people and and i've always just enjoyed meeting you a couple of years ago and and i every morning i wake up and i listen to your podcast when you have a new interview it's like one of the, my favorite things to do to start a day i love it well,
0: i appreciate the kind words jordan great to see you my man thanks for taking yeah. the time can't wait to get these New York bagels. Can't wait to get back to the uh the backyard, see another burgers and dogs showcase. I
1: hope you uh, come.
0: I'm getting vaccinated on Saturday, so it's uh um, so I'm 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 ready to party at this point.
1: I got my double shots done. My wife's okay. got hers, I've got mine. It's time we go. Let's uh, go time. Uh,
0: which one did you get? The Moderna or the Pfizer?
1: I got the Pfizer. I waited online at the uh, Williamson Agricultural Center for like a week at the end of the day and um uh, Got sent away every day and on the last day, magically, like there was one magic one left for me at the end of all the leftovers, there was one extra leftover and fantastic. made the cut. Made the so cut. let's go. Proud yeah. of everybody who's getting their vaccines. We need to, we need to do that. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, thanks Zach. I hope this was well researched. You know, there wasn't a ton out there on you, Jordan. There was like, <laughs> there, there was a little bit to look at, not a ton. <laughs>
1: Thank God. <laughs> sometimes like there's too much out there on some people these days i'm glad there's not a lot on me i've tried and pride myself on on being active and supportive and also being good people I try my best Absolutely. stay well out there i will thanks, talk to Zach. you soon i really appreciate you thanks buddy thank you talk to you soon
0: there you have it i could talk to jordan all day truly i think that that might actually take the record for our longest podcast episode to date and i'm proud that jordan was the one that we were able to break that record with jordan thanks for coming on the show so appreciative of all your support and everything that you do for artists and everyone in the community so great to have you on the podcast thanks for taking the time i better get a bagel when those come in i don't even want a batch i i just want one you know one bagel i, I want to try it. i want to know what the deal is here let's go come on come on i think i think i've earned at least one bagel here Anyway, The Zach Kuhn Show is mixed by Sam Heyman, and our theme music is by Justin Johnson. If you want more content from us, you can subscribe to our newsletter at NashvilleBriefing.com, or you can follow us on socials, everything at Nashville Briefing by the way if you want to listen to another episode with another great agent check out our episode from last season with becky Gardenhire of wme we talk all about the uh it's interesting because we talk about a lot of the same things but kind of like six months earlier in the pandemic so you can kind of see how things played out or didn't play out or you know some predictions that were made then and see if they have come true in terms of timeline and things like that. So check it out. It's a really great episode. That's it. That's all I'm going to say for right now. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Bye.